Nicholas Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Episode 16, 1893 in England, Arthur's Wacky Adventures. The tour by Sheffield and Grace in 1891-92 had reinvigorated Australian cricket. Australia had won its first series in 10 years and fan support had never been higher. Most importantly though, Sheffield's donation of £150 for the creation of a trophy for intercolonial cricket had spurred the disparate colonial associations to finally coalesce. The establishment of the Australasian Cricket Council would define the next period of Australian cricket with the creation of the first regulated cricket competition between the colonies, which would be known as the Sheffield Shield. This was a close-run thing, as a Victorian delegate had initially proposed that the donation money be split evenly between the three main associations, with the final decision to create the Shield only being won by a single vote. Initially, the Shield would be held by the winner of the first match between any two of the three main colonies. This side would only lose the Shield when they lost a match. When the summer of 1892-93 commenced, South Australia's victory over New South Wales in December, dominated by 12 wickets from George Giffen, meant they became the inaugural holders of the Shield. They would hold it for 14 days, when Victoria defeated them by six wickets to take the shield off them. It became clear that this was unsustainable, with the council altering the rules to state that whoever performed best in the season would claim the trophy. Victoria would go on to win all four of their matches that season, becoming the first winners of the Sheffield Shield, although the physical shield would not be struck until the following year. Despite not being competitors for the shield, the other colonies of Tasmania, Queensland and Western Australia all put up strong performances in matches this season. Queensland, in their inaugural first-class match, defeated New South Wales, whilst WA also played their first two first-class matches, including one against South Australia that saw the first-class debut of future Australian captain Clem Hill as a 16-year-old. It would be over 30 years until one of the other states would actually compete for the shield, however. The other major impact of the formation of the Australasian Cricket Council was the centralised selection of Australian sides to tour England. After a lot of pushback from key English figures such as Lord Hawke, who were worried that an Australian tour would disrupt the newly established county championship, it was decided that the team would depart for the 1893 season. The council was also experiencing some pushback from the leading players, who were used to organising and controlling international tours and the lucrative paydays that came from these expeditions. Eventually, the council managed to appoint one of its own, Victor Cohen, as tour manager. They also selected six players to be selectors, Blackham and Trot from Victoria, Turner and Bannerman from New South Wales, and George Giffen and Lyons from South Australia. Unsurprisingly, the selectors all decided they would be chosen for the tour. Of the other players selected, William Bruce, Sid Gregory, Affy Jarvis and Hugh Trumbull had all toured before, whilst Robert McLeod had distinguished himself against Grace's side. Walter Giffen had in no way distinguished himself as a cricketer, but with brother George being a selector and refusing to tour if Walter was not chosen, he managed to make the side. Victorian Harry Graham was the uncapped player selected, having made his first class debut that season and averaging over 50, the only player to do so other than George Giffen, of those who played all four Shield matches. However, the ACC managed to flex some influence on the leading players. Concerned that the English may not consider the side a representative one, as it only included players from three of the six colonies, the council insisted that Arthur Conningham join the squad as the 14th player. Conningham had been playing for New South Wales, but had originally come from Queensland. His presence was resented almost as much as Cohen's was, the first manager not selected by the players. The inexperience of Cohen would cause issues for the tour, in particular as the players felt he was a council spy and would keep their distance from him. The Australians arrived in April 1893 for a 36-match tour, 31 of which would be of first-class status, including the three tests. The Australians played the customary opening match against Lord Sheffield's 11, losing by eight wickets after having followed on. The highlight of the match was when Conningham, upon dismissing WG Grace for 63, walking the length of the pitch on his hands. Conningham took five for 74 in the first innings, but his eccentricity meant Blackham did not give him more responsibility on the tour. As such, he would only play under half of the matches and none of the tests. 
He would occupy himself in other ways, being popular with the ladies and also spent time winning money in billiards games. In one of the last games of the tour, he would gather some sticks and light a fire in the outfield to keep warm. He did gain some admiration from his teammates when he dived, fully clothed, into the Tims to save a drowning boy. The Australians responded well from their first up loss by defeating Warwickshire comfortably. The following match against Gloucestershire was drawn, but featured a masterful performance from George Giffen, who scored 180 before taking 7 for 11. This match not only featured WG Grace, but the former Australian bowler JJ Ferris, who was now playing for Gloucestershire. The Australians would have mixed results early on, but would enter the first test match on a five-game winning streak, including defeating the Billy Murdoch-led Sussex in the final game prior to the test. Murdoch had actually expected to be included in the Australian side, despite having settled in England and having played a representative match for England against South Africa the previous summer. Over the course of the opening matches, it had become clear that Conningham, Jarvis and Walter Giffen were surplus to requirements, and a distinct best 11 had emerged. This meant that as the first test at Lords rolled around, the Australians had a settled side. This side was considered stronger in batting than previous years, but the bowling was more of a concern. Trumbull had improved since the previous tour, and the return of Giffen added depth, but was offset by the drier conditions meaning Turner was less effective than in 1888 or 1890. They also lacked a faster bowler. Conningham being given limited opportunities hurt their ability to develop one. England will be without their star bowler George Lohman. Lohman had contracted tuberculosis at the end of the 1892 season and had departed for the warmer climates of South Africa to manage his illness. WG Grace was also an absentee with an injured finger, the first time he had missed a home test since the commencement of Test Cricket. Walter Flowers was brought in to replace him, while Stoddart would take on the captaincy. The English eleven also featured familiar faces Shrewsbury, Gunn, Maurice Reid, Peel and McGregor. They were joined by four debutants, right-arm off-break bowler Ted Rainwright, right-arm fast bowlers Arthur Mould and Bill Lockwood, and Stanley Jackson, a 23-year-old batsman from Yorkshire who will become a fixture of tests going forward. The first test at Lords, a three-day affair, commenced in July in front of 15,000 spectators. Soddart won the toss and chose to bat, opening with himself in Shrewsbury. The wicket was a soft one, and many had expected the winning captain would prefer to bowl, as a score above 150 was not expected. The Australians opened with Turner and Bruce. Shrewsbury was almost out second ball, but the edge fell short of slip. Soddart dominated the opening partnership, scoring 20 of the first 21 runs. Trumbull replaced Bruce and managed to get Stoddart to play a couple of false strokes, falling just short of the fielder. Turner then got one to strike the English captain on the elbow. This rattled him to the point that he misjudged the ball from Turner, with the ball spinning past his inside edge to hit the stumps, dismissing Stoddart for 24. New batsman Gunn could only make two before hitting a catch off Turner to Lyons at short mid-on, where the South Australian completed the catch at the second attempt. The English were wobbling at 2 for 31 as debutant Jackson joined the stoic Shrewsbury. Jackson immediately set to work, hitting Turner to the leg boundary. He dominated the partnership, taking the score under 47. Trot replaced Turner, but Jackson took a liking to him, hitting him for three successive leg boundaries in the Victorians only over. Shrewsbury finally reached double figures when the score reached 63 in an hour's play before he too started to bat with more freedom, lofting a ball over mid-off for four. McLeod and Giffen were then tried as the score approached 100. Jackson brought up his 50, but was likely to survive shortly after, as Lyons misjudged a catch running back at mid-on. The two batsmen continued to lunch, with Jackson putting the finishing touch on the session by driving turn for four to head to lunch at two for 126. Jackson survived two difficult caught-behind chances off Trumbull after lunch, while Shrewsbury was also missed by Giffen. Jackson had taken his score into the 90s, and the debut century looked assured until the return of Turner saw him caught behind for 91. He had dominated the 137-run partnership with Shrewsbury and was warmly received by the crowd. Reid replaced him, but struggled, and was bowled by Bruce for six. Peel joined Shrewsbury, who was brought up his 50 in over two and a half hours of batting, and helped take the score past 200 before skying a ball off Bruce to mid-on. This brought Flowers to the crease. 
He batted with more freedom, taking 10 runs off a given over. Shrewsby also found the boundary and moved quickly into the 90s, passing Jackson's score. He waited 10 minutes on 99 before hitting Trot to the long on boundary, bringing up his third test century. During this innings, he had become the first person to pass 1,000 runs in tests. Flowers fell shortly after, bowled by McLeod for a well-made 35, while Shrewsby fell shortly after for 106, made in over four hours of batting with nine fours. Debutants Lockwood and Wainwright took the English score past 300 before Wainwright became Turner's fifth victim. Lockwood was dismissed for 22 with the score at 333, whilst Innis finished one run later, with Mould being bowled by Turner. The Terror had been the pick of the bowlers, finishing with 6-67 off 36 overs, whilst Bruce claimed two wickets. There was still half an hour of play left in the day, with Lyons and Bannon heading out to bat. Lyons sent Peel's first ball to the leg boundary, but was out soon after, bowled by Lockwood. Giffen also suffered the same fate, out for a duck. Trot joined Bannerman and managed to see out the rest of the day, leaving the Australians at 2 for 33. Both Australian batsmen started day two with boundaries, but scoring then slowed, with only eight coming up in nine overs following. This pressure saw Bannerman cut a ball off Lockwood to point, where Shrewsby took a diving catch. McLeod joined Trot, with the scoring still progressed slowly, with only 10 runs in eight overs before McLeod's bails were knocked off by Lockwood. Gregory joined Trot, who had batted with caution. He had taken the Australians to 75 with his own score on 33 before he became Lockwood's fifth victim, caught behind by the keeper McGregor. The Australians had lost half their side and were still trailing by 264 runs as Harry Graham joined Gregory at the crease. Harry Graham was born on the 22nd of November in Carlton, Victoria. He had learned his cricket at Berwick Grammar before joining the South Melbourne Cricket Club. He was also a keen footballer, playing for the Melbourne Football Club in the VFA and being one of the leading goal kickers in 1892. He had only made his first class debut in 1892-93, but had played a key role in Victoria Sheffield Shield win, averaging over 50 with a top score of 86. This was enough to gain a place on that tour of England, where he had distinguished himself as a fantastic outfielder and an excellent player of fast bowling, particularly on wet wickets. Just prior to the first test, he had scored a magnificent double century against Derbyshire, although the match wasn't considered to be first class. On debut at Lords, he was about to play in innings of such quality it would be talked about for years to come. The two 23-year-olds took advantage of their youth, running quick singles to get the scoreboard ticking over. Graham drove Jackson to the mid-off boundary for four, while Gregory hit Lockwood to the mid-on rope to bring up the team 100. Graham was missed by a sharp caught and bowl chance, but this didn't slow him down. The English bowls were rotated with little success, as the two men brought up their 50 partnership in only 36 minutes of batting. Graham took seven runs from three balls, before taking Peel for another 12 in and over to bring up his 50, as well as taking the Australians past 150. Graham was missed on 57 by Shrewsbury at point before the two men brought up their 100 partnership in just over an hour. Gregory was missed at slip just before lunch, with the Australians heading to the break at 5 for 195. Gregory brought up his own 50 shortly after lunch, with the two taking the score under 217 before Gregory was finally dismissed, caught by McGregor off Lockwood for a well-compiled 57. He had put on 142 runs with Graham in 95 exhilarating minutes of batting. Graham didn't slow down, raising this in the 90s in partnership with Bruce. He gave another chance to Shrewsbury at point when on 98, but survived to bring up his century to loud applause after two hours of batting. The score went past 250, saving the follow-on. The Hall Graham was finally out for 107, caught by McGregor off the bowling of Mould. He had hit 12 fours in the glorious innings on a difficult pitch. The Australians were 7 for 264, but collapsed soon after to be all out for 269, with Bruce making 23. Lockwood had been the pick of the bowlers with six wickets, but had gone for 101 runs as Graham and Gregory had taken advantage of his extra pace, whilst Mould took three wickets. The English took a 65-run lead into their second innings, again opening with Stoddart and Shrewsbury. 
Shrewsbury gave a sharp chance at point that wasn't accepted before the score had reached double figures, but then opened up, hitting boundaries off both Turner and McLeod. Stoddart hit McLeod for an all-run four, but was bowled by Turner soon after for 13. This brought Gunn to the crease. The two batsmen proceeded with caution, bringing up 43 after an hour of batting, before playing with more freedom. Shrewsbury struck Turner for two consecutive fours before taking 11 off the next over from McLeod. Gunn joined in, driving Trumbull to the boundary twice. Giffen and Bruce were also tried without success as the score progressed towards 100. A close LBW shout was denied, with the day ending with the English on 1 for 113, a commanding lead of 178 heading into the final day's play. Day 3 commenced with Shrewsbury and Gunn both bringing up their 50s in short order. A missed caught and bowled chance by Bruce off Gunn was the only opportunity the Australians were able to create. The English score passed 150 shortly after midday as both batsmen found the boundary with ease. It took the introduction of Giffen to finally break the partnership, having Gunwell caught for 77 by Graham, ending his stand with Shrewsbury at 152. Jackson came to the crease but could not repeat his first innings efforts, caught at square leg off Giffen. A short rain break brought about a collapse, with three wickets falling with a score on 198, including Shrewsbury, who fell 19 runs short of being the first player to score two centuries in a single test match. Two of these fell to Giffen, whilst the other fell to Bruce. Wainwright hit a quick-fire 26 before Turner and Giffen claimed a wicket apiece. This signalled a lunch break, with Giffen having taken 5 for 43, while the English score of 234 meant they had a dominant 300-run lead. The English declared the innings close at lunch, hoping to have enough time to dismiss the Australians on the final day of play. However, the weather had other ideas, as persistent rain kept the players from the field for the remaining time, leading to the match being declared a draw. The English had had the better part of the match, but the fantastic innings of Graham had given the Australians enough breathing room to get away with heading to the next test match at the Oval with the series still level. There were seven matches to be played between the first and second tests, with the Australians winning three and losing two of these. Trot had an outstanding match in the victory against Middlesex, scoring a century and taking five wickets, while the Australians set a world record by posting 843 in their only innings against the Oxford and Cambridge past and present players, a team that included future great Ranji. Bannerman and Bruce Trumbull all scored centuries, whilst Lyons, Trot, Graham, Turner and Walter Giffen all passed 50. The Australians were going unchanged to the second test at the Oval. For the English, Grace made his return having recovered from his injury, and he was joined by Walter Reid, Briggs and Albert Ward, who was making his test debut. Out of the side went Flowers, who was ill, Wayne Wright, who was not released by Yorkshire, Peel and Maurice Reid. This ended Reid's test career, although he would receive the proceeds from the gate of the match as part of his benefit year. Grace, who was made captain, won the toss and chose the bat on an excellent pitch. Grace started in ominous form, cutting Turner for four. However, the next six overs only saw a single, as Grace and Stoddart dug in. Stoddart was only on one when he was dropped it slipped off what was a difficult chance. Later that same over, a simpler chance to trot at point was missed. These misses would cost Australia dearly. Stoddart started to open up, finding the boundary with increasing regularity. Grace was also handling the bowling comfortably. The first 40 runs took 50 minutes, but only took another 20 minutes to double that, with Stoddart reaching his personal 50 as the score ticked over to 80. Soon after, the 100 was raised whilst Grace also reached his half century. The Australians tried five bowls before lunch, but were unable to break the breakthrough with the English heading to lunch none down for 134. Grace survived an LBW shout upon the resumption of play. Stoddart found the boundary and was looking to push towards a century before he hit a ball to McLeod at slip, who dropped the catch. Stoddart wasn't able to capitalise as next ball he played on to be bowled by Turner for 83, which included 11 boundaries. With a score still on 151, his partner Grace also fell, caught by Giffen off Trumbull for 68. The Australians now had an opening, but the new batsman Shrewsbury and Gunn steadied, letting many balls go through to the keeper. They took advantage of the bad balls, with Gunn hitting a full toss to the boundary, 
while Shrewsbury took eight off a Trumbull over. The score reached an even 200 when Giffen managed to bowl gun middle stump, out for 16. This brought the debutant Ward to join Shrewsbury. He survived an early LBW shout and began to push the score forward. Shrewsbury was continuing his rich vein of form, reaching his third consecutive 50, including 10 off a McLeod over, whilst 12 came off one trot over. Ward put on an excellent display of cutting, finding the boundary of regularity and bringing up his own 50. The 300 was raised before Giffen managed to tempt Shrewsbury to hit a ball to long on, where the catch was well taken by Graham, dismissing the great English batsman for 66. Soon after, Ward fell for 55, caught and bowled by Giffen. This saw the English at 5 for 311 with new batsmen Reed and Jackson at the crease. Jackson took advantage of the tiring bowling, dominating the partnership. He twice hit lines to the square boundary and followed up by doing the same to Turner. He gave a difficult chance to Gregory in the deep, but survived. Reed batted more circumspectly, and both batsmen were able to make it to stumps, with Jackson one run short of his 50. The impressive English score of 5 for 378 had given them a commanding position in the match. The excellent English batting performance on the previous day saw 16,000 stream into the Oval to witness day two. They were rewarded with some more fine English batting, with Reed and Jackson picking up where they had left off the previous evening. Jackson drove the third ball he faced for four, bringing up his second 50 in successive tests. The Australians kept up their efforts in the field, but could not create chances as the total sped past 400 after only 20 minutes of play. Giffen was tried, but both batsmen dispatched him for boundaries, raising a century stand, whilst Reed passed 50. Given switched ends and was immediately rewarded, bowling Reed for a well-made 52. The two batsmen had put on 131 and taken the English to an imperious 6 for 442. This was immediately 7 down as Briggs was clean bowled first ball by Giffen, giving the South Australian his fifth wicket for the innings. Jackson took his score past Stoddart's 83 in partnership with Lockwood, but the latter was soon dismissed for 10, caught and bowled by Giffen. New partner McGregor ran riskily to help get Jackson to his maiden century, but we trapped LBW for 5 by that man Giffen. This left Jackson on 98 not out as the last man mould came to the crease. The tension in the crowd was palpable as they waited to see if the new man could survive to see Jackson through to his century. Mould played out the rest of Giffen's over and most of McLeod's as Jackson took an early single. Finally, Jackson imperiously drove Giffen for four, bringing up his maiden test century to much applause. Although he was run out soon after without adding to the 103 he had made, he taken England to a commanding 483, the highest score by England in tests to that point. Giffen was the star of the Australian bowling efforts, finishing with 7 for 128 off 54 overs, but lacked support. The Australian innings commenced with Bannerman and Lyons. Grace opened with Lockwood and Mould, his fastest bowlers, with McGregor standing well back. The openers handled this comfortably, with Bannerman twice hitting Lockwood to the leg boundary, whilst Lyons cut Mould for four. With the score racing at a run a minute, Grace turned to the slows of Briggs. This brought about the wicket, as Lyons played around a straight one to be bowled middle stump with a score on 30. This brought about a collapse as the Australians lost a further three wickets for only two runs, with Lockwood dismissing Bannerman, Trot and Graham, the latter two for Ducks. Gregory found the boundary off Briggs, but could only manage eight before he was trapped LBW by the same bowler. Lockwood claimed the fourth when Giffen edged the ball to the keeper. This left the Australians at 6 of 48 after only an hour at the crease. Trumbull, McLeod and Turner all fell to Briggs as single figures, with the Australians falling to 9 for 69. However, Bruce and Blackham managed to salvage some pride, hitting out and raising the score into the 90s. Blackham hit a ball in the air to Jackson, who dropped it. However, he recovered quickly, sending the ball back to McGregor, who ran out the Australian captain. This ended the Australian innings on 91, an overwhelming deficit of 392. Briggs had finished with the excellent figures of 5 for 34, whilst Lockwood's four wickets had broken the innings open. Bruce, who had remained undefeated, opened in the second innings with Bannerman. Mould and Briggs opened the bowling. The openers batted in a positive mood, with both finding the boundary of regularity. Bruce was missed at slip by Ward off Mould as the two batsmen continued on, reaching a 50 partnership. 
Mold switched ends and managed to gain the edge of Bruce, dismissing him for 22. Kiffin joined Bannerman and started nervously, nearly running Bannerman out before narrowly surviving a stumping appeal. He settled following this and in partnership with Bannerman moved the score on, taking the score on to 82. By this stage, Bannerman had gone past 1,000 test runs, becoming the first Australian and second man to do so, following Shrewsbury's effort in the first test. Jackson was tried at this point, but the two batsmen feasted on his long hops, with the score running past 100 just before 6pm. Giffen was dropped on 33 by Reid and celebrated by hitting the next ball for four. Bannerman reached his 50 through a quick single off Lockwood. Soon after, he will be out for 55, with Reid taking an excellent running catch off Lockwood. The Australians were on two for 126 as Trot joined Giffen with 20 minutes left in the day's play. The two managed to score 32 runs in this time, with Giffen reaching stumps one short of his 50, whilst Trot had made an enterprising 21. The score of 2 for 158 meant they were still trailing by 234, but gave them hope that with more solid batting, they would be able to hold out for a draw on the third day. The day started fortuitously for the Australians, with four overthrows in the first over giving Giffen his half-century. However, he could not add to this total, being bowled in Lockwood's second over for 53. He was replaced by Gregory. Trot, meanwhile, continued in the same vein as the previous evening, cutting and pulling Briggs for boundaries. He was lucky to survive a bad shot which landed between point and cover. Gregory had no such luck, falling for six to an excellent catch at point by Shrewsbury off Briggs. Graham joined Trot and the two took the score past 200. Lockwood troubled Graham with an over where the ball three times missed the stumps by a whisker. Trot, however, was dealing comfortably with Briggs, leading to him being replaced by Jackson. This didn't stop Trot, who cut Jackson for three runs in his first over, bringing up his 50. At 235, Mould replaced Lockwood, whilst Briggs also returned. Neither changes slowed the rate of scoring, with Graham taking 13 off one Mould over. The Hunter-Round partnership came up in under an hour's batting, after which Briggs missed a court and bold opportunity from Trot. However, in his next over, he managed to bowl Graham for 42. This put the Australians at 5 for 295, with a deficit now under 100 runs. New batsman Lyon should have been out first ball, but was missed by Jackson at mid-off. He then took the score past 300 with an on-drive for three. Trot continued in the same manner, hitting Lockwood for two consecutive boundaries to take him to 92. However, the bowler would finally get his man, dismissing him for that same score, just sort of his maiden test century. He had batted for just over two hours and scored 17 boundaries. Lyons continued on in partnership with Trumbull. They took 20 off one Lockwood over, with Lyons hitting a four to mid-wicket boundary, followed by a five onto the roof of the pavilion, followed by another four to long on. However, he chanced his arm too much and was all caught by Grace at mid-off for 31. This would mark the end of the Australians' resistance, collapsing from 7th to 340 to be all out for 349. Briggs finished with another 5-4, completing 10 for the match, whilst Lockwood claimed 4. The quick end gave the English a win by an innings and 43 runs, giving them a 1-0 series lead. Given the Australians had won the previous series down under, they could still retain the Ashes with a win in the third test at Manchester commencing in just over a week. However, the Australians were a disunited bunch. Blackham's leadership was disorganised. Whilst he was cool and calm on field, off field he was a nervous wreck, pacing around the dressing room riddled with anxiety. His high quality wicket keeping had diminished, letting through frequent buys and missing more chances than he had in the past. Blackham also had a habit of favouring the Victorian players. When Blackham was rested, Vice Captain Badman favoured the New South Wales players. This left the South Australians fuming. Furthermore, many players drunk excessively. Bruce and Blackham had nearly got into a fight, whilst a train trip to Sussex saw a fight between two players that led to blood being spattered in the carriage. Despite all this, they did win the two games between the second and third tests, including an eight-wicket win over a Gloucestershire side featuring WG Grace and JJ Ferris. 
Once again, the Australians were unchanged for the final test. Unfortunately for the English, they were missing two of their best performers in the series. Lockwood, who had taken 14 wickets across the first two tests, had strained a leg, meaning that he was unavailable. Meanwhile, Jackson, who had scored 199 runs at 67, was not released for the match by Yorkshire. Their places were taken by two Surrey players, all-rounder William Brockwell and fast bowler Tom Richardson, the latter of whom had only made his debut the previous year, but had carried the Surrey attack in the absence of Lohman and would go on to a stellar test and first-class career. Blackham finally won the toss at the third attempt and chose to bat. The Australians opened with Bannerman and Lyons, whilst Mould and Briggs commenced the bowling for the English. Bannerman struck Mould for a boundary off the first ball, but then settled into the anchor roll, whilst Lyons also started positively and dominated the scoring. They quickly raced to 32 runs in only a quarter of an hour's batting before Lyons fell, edging Briggs behind to McGregor, falling for 27. This brought Giffen to the crease. The scoring rate slowed and Bannerman was missed at 11, whilst the score moved beyond 50. At this point, Richardson was brought on for Mould and struck in his fourth over, bowling Giffen for 17. Bannerman departed soon after for 19, becoming Briggs' second victim, whilst Trock had only managed nine before carving a ball straight to Grace at third man. This left the Australians a precarious four for 73. At this point, Bruce and Graham combined to see the Australians through to lunch with the score at an even hundred. Graham came in for some punishment, being hit twice by Mould in the same over prior to the break. Following lunch, Bruce did most of the scoring, handling Briggs with ease. Graham struggled to get going and would eventually be out leg before for 18, giving Mould his first wicket of the innings off the last ball of the over. Bruce took a single off Briggs, where new batsman Gregory was then bowled first ball, leaving the Australians at 6 or 130. Trumbull arrived to join fellow Victorian Bruce, who was batting well. The two combined, with both finding the boundary. Bruce brought up his 50 by driving Brockwell to the mid-off boundary. He found the boundary twice more, but was out just before the total reached 200, caught by Reid off Richardson for a well-compiled 68, including eight boundaries. Once again, the Australians collapsed from seven down, with McLeod, Turner and Blackham putting up little resistance. Trumbull's last out for 35 with a score at 204, bowled by Richardson. This gave the Surrey bowler his fifth of the innings, an excellent effort on debut, whilst Briggs continued his good form with another four wickets. The Australians started their bowling innings well, getting Stoddart run out for a duck with only four on the board, a sharp throw by Gregory catching the English open a short. Shrewsby joined with Grace, and the two batted with caution, scoring only 16 run in half an hour's play. Grace opened up with boundaries in successive overs off Turner, but Shrewsby fell shortly after for 12, well caught by Bruce off Giffen at long leg. Gunn joined with his captain, and the two managed to see through to stumps with the English on 2 for 54, with the match evenly poised. Both batsmen opened their account on the second day with cut shots for four. Grace also hit Bruce for a boundary, but the Australian bowler soon after got his revenge, bowling the doctor off his pads for 40, leaving the English at three for 73. Ward joined Gunn and the two bunkered down. Blacken went with his best two bowlers, Turner and Giffen, and managed to restrict the scoring by bowling short. Gunn was up to the challenge, but Ward could only manage 13 runs before Turner got him to edge a ball through to Blackham. Reid joined Gunn and it took 15 minutes to add the seven runs required to take the score to 100. This seemingly freed up Reid, who struck two boundaries, but was out soon after, clean bowl by Giffen for 12. New batsman Brockwell managed 11, but was well caught at cover point by Gregory off Giffen just before lunch. The English went to the break at 6 for 145 with Gunn, who had been joined by Briggs, still present on 44. Following lunch, the tempo of the game shifted. Gunn started by passing 50 and taking Turner and Giffen for boundaries. Whilst Briggs failed to make an impact, being bowled by Giffen for two, McGregor batted with more fluency helping put on a partnership of 31 with Gunn. When McGregor was dismissed at 196, debutante Richardson supported Gunn with another substantial partnership of 42 in just over 30 minutes. During this time, Gunn had moved closer to his century, but when Richardson was dismissed by Bruce, he was still three short of that milestone, with only number 11 mould remaining.
However, the last man managed to keep his wicket for long enough for Gunn to reach his maiden test century. He batted for over four hours and he did eight boundaries. He also remained undefeated when Mole became the last man out, bowled by Trumbull. The English finished their innings on 243, with a 39-run lead. Giffen had led the way for the Australians with four wickets, whilst Turner and Bruce claimed two apiece. Once again, Bannerman and Lyons opened for the Australians, whilst Richardson and Briggs commenced for the English. Both batsmen played to their respective types, Bannerman the blocker and Lyons the dasher. Lyons therefore dominated the scoring, moving quickly to erase the deficit. Lyons would strike 33 in only 35 minutes of batting as the openers put on a 56-run partnership before Mould was able to rattle Lyons' stumps. Giffen dominated a 23-run partnership with Bannerman before he became Richardson's first victim of the innings, whilst Trot was out just before stumps for 12, bowled by Mould. Bannerman, as usual, was stoic, remaining on 26 not out at the close of play whilst new batsman McLeod was on one. An intriguing final day loomed. The final day had only been going for 10 minutes when a shower sent the players from the field for 30 minutes. McLeod fell soon after the resumption, caught at slip-off Richardson, having moved the score onto 99. This brought Bruce to join Bannerman. He batted in his usual style, taking 18 runs off one Briggs over. He made 36 runs either side of a 10-minute rain delay and took the Australian score to 153, but was out to Richardson. Bannerman remained stoic and raised his 50 as Graham, Gregory and Trumbull all fell for single-figure scores, leading to Australia falling to 8 for 182. He was then joined by Turner, and the two managed to see Australia through to lunch with 190 on the board, a lead of 151. Following the break, a quick ball from Richardson struck Turner on the finger, dislocating it. Fortunately for the terror, registered Dr. W.G. Grace was on the scene, putting the digit back into place and allowing him to continue batting. At the other end, once the score had reached 200, Bannerman's vigil finally ended, falling for 60 after three and a half hours of batting. He had become Richardson's fifth victim of the innings. This gave the Surrey fast bowler a 10-wicket match on debut. With only Blackham to come, a quick wicket would have given the English enough time to chase down the Australian lead. However, the Australian captain was made of stern stuff. He determined the best way of saving the match was to put the target out of reach. He dominated his 36-run partnership, put on in only 25 minutes, and managed to take the lead to the brink of 200 when Turner fell, caught at mid-off on Briggs for 27. Blackham remained undefeated on 23. This final partnership had taken the Australians to a lead of 198 and left the English with only just over two hours to chase that down. They made a strong start. Opening with Stoddart and Grace, they took advantage of the good pitch. They drove and cut well, finding multiple boundaries, with Stoddart even hooking two balls from Trumbull off his nose for four. Stoddart was then dropped at long off boundary by Bruce off Turner. Next ball, after having taken a single, Grace launched the terror into the crowd for five. The two had put on 78 in just over an hour before Trumbull managed to have Stoddart caught by Gregory at short leg for 42. This marked the end of any real attempt to chase down the total. Grace would be dismissed when the score reached 100 by Trotter Point off McLeod for 45. Trumbull would claim two wickets on successive balls at 117, before the innings was ended one run later at the close of play. The English had finished 79 runs behind with six wickets in hand. If Batterman had not batted for as long, or the Turner and Blackham partnership had finished quickly, it was likely England would have won the game. They still claim the series 1-0, having also had the better of the two draws, a return to the status quo following the surprise loss down under in 1891-92. This series would mark the end of the test careers of the two men that had first passed the 1,000-run mark, Alec Bannerman and Arthur Shrewsbury. Both had been mainstays of their respective sides and been key pillars around which the respective successes of their teams had been built around. Shrewsbury had arguably been the best batsman in the first years of test cricket and had the honour of being the first to pass the 1,000 test runs. He also had the most centuries, three, an honour which he shared with the Australian Percy McDonnell. Bannerman never quite got to three figures, 94 being his highest score but he had passed 58 times and had been consistently a thorn in the side of English bowlers who would struggle valiantly to dismiss the Stonewaller, 
such as in his final act as an Australian player. After four more tour matches, the team departed for home, with a short stop in the USA for some matches in Philadelphia. The players continued their difficult ways on the boat home, breaking into tour manager Cohen's cabin on the way home to steal his account books. There, they discovered that Cohen had underreported how much the tour had made in an attempt to take most of the profits home for the Australasian Cricket Council. Fearing for his safety, Cohen agreed to up the sum paid to each player from £50 to £190. The negative stories from the tour had meant there was no large-scale welcome home for the players, with reporters tailing them desperate for scoops about the goings-on of the trip. The tour had had much promise, taking arguably some of the best batting talent yet seen to England. However, the lack of leadership from Blackham and the lack of trust in the support bowling for Turner and Giffen meant that the trip was considered a failure back home. Indeed, including the three tests, the Australians had only won two of the 12 matches against representative sides. Once again, fresh blood would be needed to reinvigorate Australian tours. Fortunately, whilst the next season would see the last matches for two greats, new blood would debut for their colonies, giving hope to bright future for Australian cricket. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.